right, the gospel according to Mark. Uh, diving into a new series here, which is always fun. I always look forward to starting off something new. And uh, it's definitely a change in the style of uh, writing that, that we've been accustomed to in the last number of months. We've worked our way through a bunch of Paul's letters. And now we're not, we're not turning to a section of scripture that's letter written to a church or a group of people. What we're uh, turning to this morning is a narrative account, a, a synopsis that Mark wrote about the life and ministry of Jesus. And it's a, it's a great gospel account. It's really unique. We'll talk about this a little bit and how it, how it reads compared to the other gospels. It is the oldest of the four gospel accounts. Now, it comes from Mark. And so maybe just as a way of reminder, or maybe you're not familiar with who, who Mark is and how this gospel came about. Well, Mark was uh, the cousin of one of the early church leaders, a man by the name of Barnabas. He was his cousin. And Mark's family, their, their family, Barnabas, Mark's mother, they were important leaders in the early church. In fact, the early church met in Mark's mother's house, or one of the early churches. And so it was in that home, actually, in Acts chapter 12. Remember, Peter's in jail. And he gets met by the Lord, and the angel of the Lord opens, an angel of the Lord opens the gates of the prison, and Peter gets out of, out of jail, and he goes to the, the church, and he knocks on the door and gets uh, turned away there. Remember that story? Well, that is at Mark's family home that uh, Peter was going to. And so Mark's involved all over the place in the early church. He joined his cousin Barnabas and the apostle Paul in the first missionary journey, and he's kind of infamous for this fact that something happened on that uh, missionary uh, journey with that team, and for some unknown reason, he, he uh, bailed, jumped ship, and abandoned the team. And so he actually became the reason why Paul and Barnabas got in a dispute between themselves and, and separated eventually. And so Mark was this young guy in the early church. Eventually, the apostle Peter took Mark under his wing and discipled him, and he became a really important leader in the early church. In fact, so much so that Peter referred to him as his son in the faith. So you remember, Paul has two sons in the faith, Timothy and Titus. Mark is Peter's son in the faith. And so this is often referred to, Mark's gospel, as Peter's gospel. Mark is recounting the stories that Peter has told him. In fact, Peter, in his ministry, ended up in the city of Rome and spent a lot of time in Rome. And uh, the early church wanted uh, the preaching and teaching of Peter to be recorded. And Peter was, church kind of history says this, Peter wasn't interested in like some documentation of his preaching and all that sort of stuff. And so Mark kind of took it on and we have this gospel account born of that. So we're thankful for that. So if you've read Mark, maybe you've never read it. Maybe you have. If you've read it recently, you'll know this, that it reads very different from the other gospels. It's, it's short. And um, it has this kind of energy and action and pace to the style of writing that just keeps the, the synopsis of Jesus' life and ministry moving. In, in Mark's gospel, things just happen quick. And, and you're going from event to event. And so um, it's a great little gospel account. And what Mark does is this, is he's, he's in Rome. We believe this, that he's writing this letter, this narrative while in Rome. And because he was in Rome, he's writing to Romans, a, a Roman Gentile audience. And so he doesn't speak of things from a Hebrew point of view in this gospel. He doesn't, you know, uh, well, he doesn't, in fact, focus on the teachings of Jesus, which is interesting. What he does is he talks about the actions of Jesus, the things that Jesus did. He puts all of the emphasis on what Jesus did. What occupied Jesus for three years in terms of activity? And so I like this because, you know, when you consider this gospel and it's and its place in our lives, you know, one of the things that people often are interested in is what Christians believe. What, what do you believe? What doctrines do you believe? What theology do you believe? What do you believe about Jesus and salvation? 
But there are others who could care less. Have you got any of those people in your life? They don't care what you believe. They're not interested in Christianity. They're not interested in theology or maybe doctrine or who Jesus is. We all have those kinds of people in our lives. And what speaks to them is not what we articulate with our mouths, but how we live with our lives. Amen? And so this is a good gospel because it points us in the direction of action. It tells us not about what Jesus said. It tells us about what Jesus did, the actions that he took in his followers of Christ. We need both in our lives. We need to speak the gospel. We need to speak what we believe, but also the message of God's love revealed in the person of Jesus needs to be lived out by us. It's got to be proclaimed and it's got to be lived. And so this gospel tells us about action. And so uh, this gospel is, again, interesting in this sense because it's going to talk about Jesus. And and Mark, um, as he speaks to a Roman audience, excuse me, he moves fast and he moves strong. And as he tells us about the actions of Jesus, he just gives details that the other gospels don't. Like the other gospels tell us that little children came to Jesus, but it's Mark who tells us that they came to him and he swept them up in his arms. The other gospels tell us that Jesus healed lepers, but it's Mark who says, yeah, but before he healed them, he touched them. Mark tells us that that Jesus didn't just heal a deaf mute man. Mark says, Actually, he spat on the ground and then he took his fingers and put them in the man's ears and spoke. It's Mark that tells us that when Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000, he sat them down in the green grass like the good shepherd of Psalm 23. And so Mark gives us a lot of details as he's moving quick that that just enrich the accounts of Jesus. They say this, that Matthew's gospel is actually built off of Mark's gospel. Mark's is a short gospel. And Matthew takes 95% of what Mark communicated, and then he just builds it out, and he adds the teaching of Jesus, and he adds with regards to Old Testament prophecy. So this morning, we're going to just look at the first 15 verses, and um, we're going to see seven witnesses Seven witnesses that testify to the identity of Jesus. And Mark's gospel opens with a confession of faith. A confession of faith is a a clear statement of belief. And so Mark opens with this confession of faith. Faith, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark, he, he gets going here, doesn't waste any time. Because that's how he rolls. This is his confession of faith. The very first verse, he says this, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And when I read this, I hear an echo of the creation account. Can you hear that there? This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, Mark says. And you can hear the echo of Genesis 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so Mark opens, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the word gospel, it means, good, it means good news or glad tidings. This is the good news of Jesus, a good message, a graceful message. The good news of Jesus, who is a real, genuine, historical person. And Mark says this, he is the Christ. That is, he's the Messiah. He is the anointed of God, God's chosen and promised Savior of the world. That's what it means to be the Christ. And so this is the good news about the Son of God. Not, not a Son of God, but the Son of God. He's unique. God the Son, the Son of God. And so the first uh, witness in this section of Scripture here is Mark himself. If you're taking notes, the first witness to the identity of Jesus is Mark. And he says this, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And then he shares some Old Testament prophecy in verse 2. Verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So the second 
witness that Mark gives to the identity of Jesus is the prophets. The prophets who identify Jesus as, I want you to see this, they identify him as Lord. Mark identified him as Christ, as God. The prophets identified him as the Lord. They said, prepare the way for the, for the Lord. That's right. And there's two Old Testament prophets quoted here. One is Isaiah and the other is Malachi. Isaiah is prof, uh, quoted from Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah prophesied these things. Malachi prophesied that before the Lord would come, that first would come a messenger. And the messenger would appear ahead of time. He would come before the Lord to prepare a way for the coming of the Lord. Now in ancient times, uh, when there was a king coming to town, or when there was someone of great importance rolling into town, a a messenger would be sent ahead of time, and they would go and prepare the people for, let's say, the king's coming. Announcing that the king is coming. So it's like, you know, Fix that fence. Get your house painted, you know. Clean the town up. Pick up some garbage. Let's get ready. The king is coming to town, an important guest. We better repair the roads, which reminds me, you know, all the way back to 2010, you know, the Olympics in Vancouver. Do you remember that? I remember where I was when they announced that the Olympics were coming. I was so excited about that. And as soon as it was announced that Vancouver had won the bid to host the Olympics, the next thing that was announced was this. We better fix some roads around the lower mainland. We better fix that Sea to Sky Highway from Vancouver up to Whistler. Remember that highway? Remember the old highway? I mean, the first time I ever went up there, I saw a car torn in half either side of the road. Grocery, scat. I mean, that road was crazy. And so the province of BC said this. There's important guests that are going to travel that road. The world is coming. We've got to widen the road. We've got to straighten the road. Remember, we're going to carve a a new road from West Vancouver over to Lions Bay, right over the mountains. Flatten the mountains and fill the valleys. And there's going to be big tax bills that are going to be around for a long time after it's all over. The world was coming to Vancouver. So straighten out our highways. And this messenger, the prophet said, would announce the coming of the Lord. And he is described as one calling in a desert. And so the third witness to the identity of Jesus is John the Baptist. Look at verse 4. Mark says, John appeared. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, I love that Mark just says this about John. He appeared. John appeared. He came into sight. He became visible. There was no mistake in identifying who this man was. There was no confusion. We, we saw, he appeared. And John the Baptist was the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the path for the Lord. And the response to John is absolutely incredible, Mark tells us. That all of the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. The whole Judean countryside. You know, it's like, I don't know what you picture in your mind. It's like, oh, there are like, you know, a few dozen people wandering down there. No, that is not what's going on here. The whole countryside and all of Jerusalem were going to him confessing their sins and being baptized in the Jordan River. This is incredible what's happening. I mean, how great was the impact of John's message? Well, a conservative estimate of the city of Jerusalem at that time was like 60,000 residents. They all came and confessed their sin. The religious leaders were coming from Jerusalem down to the river. All the people in the countryside were coming down to the Jordan River. It's tens of thousands. I think maybe you could say hundreds of thousands of people were responding to the message of John. Wouldn't you love to see that happen in our own nation? So picture it in your mind's eye. In a day and time, there's no no, like slick marketing machine. John doesn't have the internet, you know. There's no 24-hour live stream of baptisms in the Jordan River happening here. The word is spreading. The spirit of God is moving. 
And people are being called to straighten out their lives, and they're responding. Thousands are responding to John's message, and they're repenting, and they're entering the waters of baptism. And, and it's amazing because when you look at John, you're like, well, what was going on with John? Who was John that he was so special? But we know this. It, was, it wasn't John. It was the Spirit of God at work in and through John. You read about his message in the other Gospels, and he certainly wasn't trying to tickle anyone's ears, was he? You brood of vipers. I mean, he, John was harsh in his preaching. He called people everywhere, repent. And his message was this, the Messiah is coming. Prepare for his rule. Prepare for the coming of King Jesus. And to prepare for him, you have to straighten out your heart. You have to straighten out the highway to your heart. This isn't any guest that's about, to, any old guest that's about to appear. You know, again, I think about a highway being straightened out and all the work that's involved in that, all the construction machinery, the dump trucks and graders and excavators and blasting crews and dynamite and rock crushers and, and high places being brought low and low places being filled up. That's what happens when a highway is built. And in the same way, your heart has to be straightened out. Your heart has to be straightened out with repentance and faith. You know, some of you here today, maybe, maybe you would say this, I actually don't have a relationship with Jesus. I'm just kind of interested. I'm checking things out, whatever it is. Some of you here might be in the spot where you say your relationship with Jesus is, I don't know, slipped. It's a little cold, a little distant, slid into that place where questions in your own heart and turmoil in your own life has led you away from a place of assurance and rest and peace in Christ Jesus. And the path is still the same. You have to straighten the highway to your heart for the Lord. And it happens through repentance. Repent. You know, you don't believe in Jesus or, you know, things are cold with the Lord. Repent. Make straight paths for him and invite him to come and touch your life again and to enter you again and to fill you again with his spirit. And this was the message of John. Straighten out your life. Repent. And as John preached this message, it was music to the ears of the people who heard it. They were oppressed in so many ways. Politically oppressed financially oppressed, paying too much taxes. It kind of all sounds a little bit familiar in some ways. Religiously oppressed. And the only connection for the nation was just dead to the Lord, was dead, dried religion. We would say this, like, at this time in Israel, it had never been more dead and it had never been more dry. John said, make, straight, make a straight path for him. So how far were the Jews willing to go to straighten out the path for the Lord? Well, we find out this. They were willing to repent and they were willing to be baptized. And this is an amazing picture because baptism in water was not, it's not foreign to Hebrew culture. John, John was baptizing people, we say this, by immersion. Full under the water. Which means this. They were overwhelmed by the cleansing power of that water as they went into it. They were buried in the water. But Jewish religious customs involved lots of ceremonial washing. Lots of ceremonial bathing, you know, up to here. But this was full immersion in water. Typically, the only time Hebrew people practiced full immersion in water was when it was being applied to a Gentile. When a Gentile was coming to uh, practice Judaism to enter in to become Jewish, they would be baptized. And so for a Jew to be baptized was essentially them saying, I confess that I am as far away from God as a Gentile who knows nothing. And I need to get right with God. So I repent. I want to straighten it out. I want to straighten out my heart and straighten out my life. And this was a very genuine work and move of the Holy Spirit 
in the nation of Israel, thousands and thousands repented of sin and were baptized in water. And it was not a matter of the water removing sin. We know this. The stench of sin can't be washed off your life with water. You know, we went on our, uh, our hunting trip in December and we were up a valley up the coast and um, we found a dead black bear. It was, probably, yeah, it was probably killed by a grizzly. It was like, wow, this is crazy, man. We're in a wild now. And Kyle's like, I'm, I'm going to go over to this. So he goes over to it, He pulls out his pliers. He's like, I'm going to get a tooth or I'm going to get a claw. And so he's there and I'm thinking, the smell, the stench of death. Oh, no. And so Kyle, he, he just touched that thing. And then he decided, no. And then he walked over. He said, you know what? If the smell of that gets on me, you guys aren't going to let me in the tent for the rest of the week. And so he didn't get his tooth. So, you know, maybe next year we'll go find the rest of it. Sin has a stench of death to it. You can't wash it off. It doesn't, it isn't cleansed off you by just baptism. But it was an act that these folks were taking, a symbolic act of a heart that was preparing itself to say, come, Lord, come. I want, you to be enter, I want you to enter my life. I want the highway to be straight so that nothing would hinder you from coming into my life. Now today, in the church, we don't practice the baptism that John was practicing with the Jewish people. John's baptism looked forward in faith to the coming of Christ. It was an act of preparation. John's baptism looked forward. The baptism that we practice, it, it looks backwards. That's what I would say. We look backward in history to the cross. And when a follower of Jesus is immersed in the water, they are identifying themselves with the death of Jesus and with the resurrection of Jesus, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for sin on the cross where he died. He was buried. He rose from the dead. And so to be forgiven of our sin and raised to new life, that is a picture of baptism. That is what is symbolized in baptism. And so all of this was going on with, with John down at the Jordan River, which is a very significant place for the people of Israel. The Jordan River served as the, the border between the wilderness and the promised land. Remember when Joshua led the children of Israel into the promised land? First, they had to cross the Jordan. And so a return to the Jordan was to prepare the people. John was calling them there. His ministry was in a specific place. And again, it was to be led spiritually from a wilderness into a promised land. And it happened at the Jordan River, a spiritual promised land. And so Mark gives this description of John, and when you read it, it's a little crazy, isn't it? You know, I mean, John wasn't living high on the ministry. We can say that. He didn't have a private jet, you know, not cruising around in a fancy car, um, no mansion in the Galilee with a little cottage by the Jordan River. Um, no, John rejected all of that. Look at verse 6. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. So this is a wild man. <laughs> That's what I would say. J John was actually born in a priestly family. His father was a priest. From the time that John was of a young age, he would have been trained to be a priest. Like that was what his family did. But he ditched the priestly robes. For camels, a robe made of camel's hair. He ditched Jerusalem for the wilderness. And what he ate, Man, locusts and wild honey. <laughs> I, I don't mind me some chicken nuggets, you know, with sweet and sour sauce. <laughs> John liked his locusts dipped in honey. Yeah, not chicken nuggets, but when you eat locusts, you got to dip them in something, I guess. So honey works, as they say. A spoonful of honey makes the medicine go down, okay? And it'll make the locusts go down, too. So... Thankfully, I'll guarantee you, we are not serving that at lunch today. So John's a wild man. And in his personality, and in his ministry, 
he's patterned after the Old Testament prophet Elijah. Elijah dressed the same way. The Old Testament tells us. And Elijah was a prophet who fearlessly called the people of Israel to repent of sin and turn away from, in fact, the worship of Baal. In his generation at his time, they were worshiping the false god Baal. And so John was patterned after Elijah, and this is important because it made him identifiable. Remember? He's, he's the third witness here. He appeared. Oh, that guy with the leather belt and wearing the camel's clothes and all this stuff. And so verse 7 tells us what he preached. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So the focus of John's ministry was not himself. The focus of his ministry was announcing the coming of one who would come after him. And John directed the people. He said, the one who is coming is mightier than I. I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals, which is a statement that makes a lot of sense in the mind of someone from the first century. John said this because the rabbis actually taught with this regard. The rabbis said this, that when you have a disciple, you can have your disciple do anything, but one thing you cannot ask your disciple to do is to take off your sandals. Because, you know, feet are dirty and dusty, and in that environment, it's like, that is going way too far with your authority to ask a disciple to take off your sandals. But John says this about himself. He says, I'm not even worthy to take off the sandals to do this task for the one who is about to appear. So when you consider what John says here, and you consider what he's saying in light of first century thinking, it's all the more amazing what the Gospels tell us about Jesus and what he did for his disciples. He didn't ask them to take off his sandals. He stripped down, right? Put a towel around his waist, and he removed their sandals and washed their feet. It's no wonder that Peter's first response was to say, I'll have no part of this. And Jesus said, yeah, but if I don't do this for you, you have no part of me. Then Lord, not just my feet, but my whole head as well. Jesus, the servant, told his disciples that as their master and Lord, if he should wash their feet, then they should go and do likewise for others. So John says, I'm not worthy to even stoop down and untie the sandals of the one is, who is coming. And in his preaching and teaching, he magnified Jesus, this one who was to come above all others. And where Christ is magnified, the Holy Spirit is going to work. There is going to be pa the power of God present upon the hearts of those who hear. And, and I, I, as I think about that, I'm like, man, I want us to be a church that's just faithful. Just faithfully proclaim the word of God. I was, I was praying for this message and sp spending time with the Lord like I do in preparation. And I'm like, oh, Lord, I've like a preach mark before. Oh, Lord, oh, like give me something new. And you know what the Lord told me? Be faithful. Just be faithful. Walk them through the text. Look at verse 8. I have baptized you with water. But he will baptize you with, water, with the Holy Spirit, John said. I love that verse, don't you? John compares the power of his ministry to the ministry of Jesus. He's like, man, we're not in the same league. <laughs> I'll baptize you with water, but he is going to baptize you in something else. Someone else. The Holy Spirit. And it's a great visual. You know, baptism is this... Over, overwhelming immersion. Picture someone being buried in the waters. And he says, he's going to baptize you in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and, and will overwhelmingly immerse you in his presence and power, and it's going to be Jesus who does this for you. Uh, it makes me think, like, you know, water baptism and baptism of the Holy Spirit, we need both, don't we, church? 
The Holy Spirit is so beautiful in his ministry. His ministry is beautiful. His ministry and his nature is not to exalt himself, but to exalt the person of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's at work, you know. We want him at work in our lives and and in our church, and he's always at work. He's always convicting the worlds with regards to sin, righteousness, and judgment to come, and he does it by magnifying Jesus. And John baptized with water, but he said this, Jesus would baptize with the Spirit, and then the Spirit would in turn empower those baptized to magnify Jesus and boldly and powerfully proclaim the saving work of Christ. We need a fresh baptism of the Spirit. Then it says in verse 9, Those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now when I read this, you know, in your Bible, I don't know, look at your Bible for a second. Look at verse 8 and look at verse 9. And do you notice what's in between them? Oh, man, it bugs me. You guys know this about me. Those subtitles, they just get in the way so often. Mine mine says, uh, between verse 8 and 9, the baptism of Jesus. You may have some sort of subtitle in your Bible there, and I just have to say that that title and that division gets in the way of something that Mark is saying very, very clearly, and I don't want us to miss it. You know, maybe in your Bible, if you're making notes or you got a pen, you might want to just draw an arrow connecting verse 8 and verse 9 and write, there is no division here. There is no division of thought. Don't let this subtitle create an obstacle for you. So let me read it again, and let's read verse 8 and 9. There's no division. Verse 8. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. In those days, he came. Mark is, Mark is pointing out, this is the man. This is the one. The statement is very clear. He is identifying Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who was to come. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the one whom John said, I'm not fit to untie his sandals. Jesus is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the one who is mightier than I. Mark says this, that Jesus came from the town of Nazareth. That's a lame town. I don't know if you know that about Lazarus, about Nazareth, but it is. Whenever we go there, you know what we do? We're like, okay, you know, we've done our tours to Israel. It's like, there's nothing to see here. Let's go out for coffee. And then we go have baklava, and we have this like really good Arab custard dessert. And then we're like, okay, we're going to leave Nazareth. We'll go see the brow of the hill. There's, there's nothing to see there. It was kind of like seashell. No, just kidding. There's good places in Seashell for dessert. Like my mom's house. <laughs> Nazareth was a region in Galilee where nobody wanted to be from and where nobody wanted to live. It, it was not a place that had any great spiritual reputation whatsoever. And in and, and Galilee itself, Nazareth in Galilee, Galilee itself was like, a religious cultural soup. It was like our call, like like our nation. Anyone serious about living for God didn't live in Galilee, and didn't live in Nazareth. Okay, you got out of there. You went to Jerusalem. Galilee was not the Bible Belt. Nazareth was not the center of it. They were not refined folks. They were not city folks, but that's where Jesus came from. This is where he chose to work, just like he desires to work here. That's what I I was thinking as I read this. like, man, thank you, Lord. You want to work in little places. And Jesus was baptized by John. But it wasn't because Jesus was a sinner who needed to repent. Jesus was without sin, so why was he baptized? Well, Jesus was baptized so as to identify with sinful man. His was a baptism of identification. Just like we're baptized and we identify with him, he was baptized and he identifies with us. He didn't have to be baptized. And for that matter, Jesus did not have to die on a cross. (laughs) He did both because he was identifying with sinful men. Men and women, both were acts of solidarity 
with fallen mankind. He did so to identify with us. And so the third witness here to the true identity of Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah, is John the Baptist. The fourth is the Father. Let's read on. The fourth witness is God the Father. Verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So this is, this is amazing. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus in the bodily form of a dove. And I love that picture because it's not a bird of prey. It's not an eagle. It's not some scavenger bird. It is a dove, a symbol of harmlessness, a symbol of peace. The fifth, the fifth witness, actually, I'll jump ahead here for a second. The fifth witness, I would say, is the Holy Spirit. So you got God the Father giving witness. We'll read that in a moment. And the Holy Spirit giving witness. Because John said this, the man on whom the Holy Spirit descends and remains is he. And it's an amazing picture here that the heavens are torn open. Like literally heaven is rended. I, I, I wonder what that looked like. That the heavens were rended and the Spirit descended in the form of a dove. It's actually really cool that Mark does this. He begins his gospel with the heavens being rended. He ends his gospel with the curtain in the temple being rended. Torn in two. So heavens being torn open. God was coming to man. Coming to his creation. And God the Father spoke a voice of the Lord from heaven. Which is not a common thing in scripture. You know that. It happened at very, very rare occasions. Like the coming of the law and the coming of Jesus. And the Father made it very clear from heaven, an audible voice that the people heard. A public statement about the identity of Jesus. He said this, You are my son whom I love and with whom I am well pleased. And verse 12 tells us, The Spirit immediately drove him into the, out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, this word immediately, uh, I'll point it out here this morning. You're going to get me pointed out lots in the weeks to come. It's very interesting. It's an important word to Mark. He uses it a lot. He uses it 41 times in this gospel. He uses it nine times just in this chapter. And it all happens after the Spirit descends upon Jesus. And it's emphasizing the action of Jesus and that the things that are happening are spirit-led actions. The Spirit of God is causing these things to happen and is at work. And the language is really clear saying that the, the Holy Spirit did this. He drove Jesus into the desert, which is an interesting ministry of the Spirit. When you think about all of the things that we Equate with the Holy Spirit and the works and ministries that he does. Oh, he brings comfort. He's a spirit of peace. He's the counselor. We often don't say this. Yeah, but the spirit can drive you. Jesus was driven into the, the desert. And it's actually the same language. Mark uses a specific word here. It's the very same word that he uses when he speaks of Jesus driving out demons out of the possessed. Jesus was driven by the Spirit, and this was an intense experience. Again, he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted, and this is another way by which he could identify with us. He was sinless. But Satan unleashed all of his arsenal against Jesus. Tempting him to sin. When, when you read the other gospel accounts, you know this, that there were three specific ways that Satan tried to get Jesus to sin. But what you need to remember is that this went on for 40 days. It wasn't just a little event at the end of 40 days of fasting. Jesus endured 40 days of temptation. And being tempted for 40 days in the desert, I mean, it sounds familiar to me, to Israel wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. We need to connect those. Israel's desert trip should not have taken any more than 
They say 10 days. 10 days from slavery to the land of promise. But they failed the tests. And they spent 40 years wandering until finally Joshua led them out of uh, the desert into the promised land. Jesus is the greater Joshua. Jesus was faced with temptation and he overcame. And having overcome his own wilderness trial, Jesus could do this. He could lead any who would come to him into their spiritual inheritance, into the promised land. I love that it says he was with wild animals. It's like, what? What the heck? What does that mean? With wild animals and angels? Angels ministering to him? And I think that this is an incredible picture that Jesus is the son of man. He's the son of God. With wild animals, that's like this terrestrial, earthly picture, but angels ministering to him is heavenly. You've got a picture of the Son of Man and the Son of God. And this is a detail the other Gospels don't tell us about. And what it tells me about Jesus is that Jesus rules over the physical, natural world. He rules over the animal kingdom, but Jesus also rules over the spiritual realm. Both the natural and the spiritual realms exist to serve him. And the idea that the animals were with him here is this is a picture of Adam. The second Adam. Remember the first Adam in the book of Genesis? He lived in a garden of Eden peacefully with tame animals. Not wild animals. Tame animals. That is until Adam sinned. And he lost his dominion over the world, over creation, and the animals became wild. And so this is a garden scene, Jesus. This is a garden scene, except Jesus is in the garden. He isn't in the garden. He's in the wilderness. Paradise is lost. But Christ is going to win it back for himself and his creation. Like the first Adam, Jesus was also tempted by the serpent. This is the picture for us. But now it's the wilderness, not the garden. And where the first Adam failed, Christ is going to succeed. And, and he's with wild animals and they don't harm him. It's like, I don't know, with the lions there, the bears, what, what wild animals were with him? Jesus was with these wild animals and the angels were serving him. It's a foreshadow of a future time when Peace and righteousness are going to rule. Isaiah prophesied this. The lion will lay down with the, the lamb. When he returns, when Christ returns and establishes his physical kingdom on earth, that is what it's going to be like. The lion will lay down with the lamb. And so Jesus is the son of God. We see there's son of man here. And he's a servant of the father. He's fulfilling what the father is calling him to do. Now look at verse 14 and 15. It says this, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So before Jesus' ministry began, first John's got to be removed. The emphasis has to be taken off of John and placed on Jesus. And so John is arrested in the providence of God. And it's purposeful because it's time for Jesus to take center stage. And so it tells us that he came into Galilee and he began proclaiming the gospel of God. That is, he proclaimed good news from God. He presented to people glad tidings from the Father in heaven. Good news from God to man, and the message is this. This is the sixth witness of his identity. The gospel. The gospel. He preached good news from God to man. Good news had to do with the kingdom of God, we find out. That is the rule of God. Jesus said this, the kingdom of God's at hand. It's, it's close to you. It's near unto you. You know, when you, when, you, when you think of the kingdom of God, I always think, well, what does that mean? I just think of it like this. It's the rule of God. It's his rule. Wherever the king is present, the kingdom is present. And this is his rule. 
And the kingdom of God, in fact, the kingdom is referred to in the New Testament 119 times. And when you take those times together and you look at the picture of what they paint, the kingdom expresses this idea, the rule of God, which is manifest through Christ, apparent in the church, gradually developing in the midst of hindrance or trouble that is triumphant at the second coming of Christ and finally perfected in the world to come. The kingdom speaks of the rule of God. And Jesus said this, the time is fulfilled. It is the time. It is time for the kingdom. It's at hand. And he said this, the response to the kingdom of God, the response to the coming of the king, the response to the king's rule is this. It's twofold. You must repent and believe in the good news. Repent and believe. So what is repentance? If that's step one, what is repentance? Well, repentance just simply means this. It means that you change your mind. You know, we have these pictures of repentance that repentance means, oh, I'm so sorry and I'm sobbing and I'm crying over my, you know, this, crying over my sin, crying over that. That's not what repentance is. That's not the biblical definition of repentance. It may involve those things. But repentance is to have a change of mind. You have to change your mind about sin and then you change your mind about Jesus. You turn from sin and you turn in faith to Jesus. That's what repentance is. It's to have a change of mind. So Jesus said this, I have good news for you from the Father. Now accept it. Change your mind. You know, there's this, there's this temptation that we face not to believe the good news. Don't buy into that temptation. Jesus said the correct response is this, you repent. That means you change your mind. You receive the good news. Secondly, he said this, and you believe it. You believe it. Now, here's what that's not, because we have a confusion about what belief is. What is it to believe? Here's what belief is not. Belief is not an assent to an intellectual premise. It's not something that happens here. It involves this. Just like repentance can involve sorrow and sobbing and Belief involves this, but it's not the primary thing. Belief means this. Place the full weight of your life upon the good news. All of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength, the full weight of your life, place it on this good news. Now, not just something you believe in your mind. It means this. You live it. It encapsulates all who you are. It is your reality. It is your assurance. It is your hope. It is the good news upon which your life rests and clings to. And the good news is this. The kingdom is near. I love this. We're not even here yet. But Jesus is going to say, and it can be in you. It can be in you. So this morning, as I, I called this message seven witnesses. I gave you six so far. You read this text, I'm like, man, the importance of witnesses. Uh, who were they? I don't have them written down in front of me, but they're Mark. Help me out. Mark, the prophets, John the Baptist, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel. I want to give you a seventh. It's you. It's you. You're the seventh witness. We have seen the importance of witnesses. The gospel needs those who would give testimony to it. The gospel needs those who would testify to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And to do so, do you know what you need? The empowerment of the Holy Spirit. You need the empowerment of the Spirit. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. And this morning, 
Let's ask the Lord to do two things as we come to the table. Let's ask him to straighten out our hearts. Actually, you know who straightens out the heart? You do. Straighten out your heart. Repent. Straighten out your heart and make a path for the king. So this morning as we prepare, my instruction is this. Straighten out your heart. Get it ready for the coming of the king. And secondly, the instruction is this. Let's pray for the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We need a baptism of the Spirit. We need to be a church empowered by the Spirit. We need to be individuals empowered by the Spirit that we would be witnesses unto Christ, His gospel, His lordship, His rule, His kingdom. And so let's pray this morning. Father, as we come before you in the name of Jesus, first of all, we just repent, Lord. There's any area of our life that is out of order. Please forgive us. Cleanse us of that sin. And Lord, right now, we just take the step to change our mind about that thing, about that issue, about that sin, and to put it in its correct spot. That's surrendered to you. So Lord, we believe on you. Jesus, this morning, we place the full weight of our lives upon the gospel, upon the good news that you brought. It's good news from God, glad tidings. We thank you for your kingdom, Jesus. May your kingdom take territory in our lives, in our church, in this community. And Lord, we pray that you would make us to be witnesses for your kingdom, your person. For that, Father, we confess we need the Holy Spirit. We need a baptism of the Spirit, a full immersion, Lord. Totally empowered, life's transformed. The driving force that we would go out immediately. Driven by the Spirit, Lord. Father, we pray that you would make us men and women driven by the Spirit. Led by the Spirit. Empowered by the Spirit. Full of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you. And so, Lord, this morning we ask that you would pour out the Spirit upon our lives. That we would be fully immersed, baptized this morning. That our lives would be changed and transformed. For you and for your glory, Jesus. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name.